book of Ephesians tells a cosmic story of God's plan for God's people. God invites us to participate in the sound of heaven reverberating on earth. There's been an unseen battle raging from the beginning of time. Jesus triumphed over the powers of darkness, and God plans to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. This cosmic plan is in Christ's body, the church. The church is God's most powerful means of transforming the world and is central to God's eternal purposes. The church displays Christ's power as he loves and blesses his people despite their sin, as he unifies them despite their differences. The church is the unstoppable vehicle of Christ's powerful love and grace, moving with unstoppable power until Christ fills all. again. I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you. My name is John, and I serve Mission Church as the lead pastor. I'm honored and I'm humbled to gather with you this morning to worship and to uh, just to be with you today. If you are new around here, welcome. Our mission and our vision of Mission Church is to partner with God to see His kingdom come here in Las Vegas as it is in heaven. And we accomplish this as we love Jesus, live like Jesus, and lead others to Jesus. Mission Church, we are unapologetically centered on God's Word. For the Bible, we believe, contains the very authoritative words of God. And so as a result, we sing God's Word, we pray God's Word, and we are faithful to preach God's Word. And this morning, we are continuing in our current journey through Paul's beautiful letter to the Ephesians. And we've entitled this series, God's Plan for God's People. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to have one, and there are some on the bookshelf in the back. Feel free to get up and grab one at any time and hold on to it. In fact, we had some scripture journals for the book of Ephesians. We've gone through all of those, but we're putting in a new order. So if you didn't get one um, in the next few weeks when they arrive, you should be able to have another or have a scripture journal in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 11 through 18 this morning, and when you have it, I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised, by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without God in the world. But far away providing walls in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so reconcile both to God and one God. He came and proclaimed the people who were far away 
to the Father. My goal this morning is to help make sense of this text both practically and relationally, especially regarding Paul's reminder that we were at one time alienated. Alienated from God. Alienated from one another. Alienated from His people. In fact, in these few verses, Paul is going to answer the questions, what does it mean to be alienated? And how do we move from alienation to reconciliation? And not only with reconciliation with God, but also reconciliation with one another. So as a result, I've entitled this sermon, From Alienation to Reconciliation. And before we dive in, would you join me in prayer? God, we're desperate for you and we need you. I pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts so that we have a greater understanding of who you are and what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ, through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Not only to reconcile us, broken sinners who are at one time rebelling and enemies of you, reconciling us to you, but also reconciling us to one another, the church, the beautiful gift that you've given us as a reflection of what what you desire to to see in us is that you've broken down the hostility in what we see in this text. And so may we be a reflection of, of what we're going to discuss this morning and pray, Lord, that you would help us to leave here equipped to live on mission for you. Lord, we love you and we pray, Lord, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You don't need me to tell you this morning that the world in which we live is, is divided. The world we live in is hostile. It's full of animosity, and this is, unfortunate reality is, is unmistakable as it exists all around us. Wherever we go, it's the cultural air that we breathe. In fact, there was a global survey uh, recently in the last few years that found um, in their, their uh, they, they asked 20,000 people questions, sorry. <laughs> There's 20,000 people that they surveyed from 27 different countries. And all those people answered in the survey that they feel as though their society is divided and the the world that we live in is fractured and broken. You see, we live in a time and we live in a space that is full of social distinctions, racial barriers, narrow nationalisms, and iron curtains. However, a brief overview of the history of the world will reveal that these hateful realities are not new to us. They're not new to our time and space. Division and conflict are not unique to modern society, but have existed in some form or another since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. World history is marred by hatred, violence, wars, alienation, and division. And all of this is rooted in sin. You see, it's sinful human nature to build up barriers that shut other people out. In Ephesians, Paul is speaking to a world that's just as broken as ours. In fact, there may not have been a more exclusive and unrelenting separation than the one that existed between Jews and Gentiles in biblical times. The rivalry was deep. The rivalry was complex. It was hostile. It's much more than me being a Chiefs fan and Vinny being a Broncos fan. The rivalry was much more intense In fact, the Jews believed that Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. 
There was even Jewish laws that made it illegal to aid Gentile women in giving birth because they felt that by them giving birth, they're bringing another heathen into this world. The Gentiles had their own narrow-minded hatreds too. In fact, the Greeks believed that there are two classes of people in the world, Greeks and everyone else who were barbarians. The Greeks violently waged war against anyone who wasn't Greek. And in a similar way, the Jews viewed anyone who wasn't a Jew as a dog. Ultimately, these exclusive collisions between the Gentile and Jewish worlds were monumental and resulted in a rivalry that was religious, it was cultural, and it was racial. And despite the ever-present reality of division and hostility throughout history, the church, it should be defined differently. For the heart of God is that His people, regardless of race, would be united into one body. One body we call the church. You see, in Christ, every believer is united. In God's kingdom, all barriers come down. In Jesus, there are no walls, there are no classes, there are no castes, there's no distinctions of any sort. In and through Christ, enemies become friends. And this unity proclaims the mystery of the gospel in the broken world that is in desperate need of peace. In our text this morning, we see that there's not only a vertical purpose to Christ's death, we discussed that in, de- in depth last Sunday. But we see in our text this morning that there's also a horizontal, horizontal purpose. That through the cross, we are not only reconciled to God, but we are reconciled to one another. In fact, the significant text, it walks us through two movements that we're going to discuss this morning. Movement number one, who we once were. And movement number two, what Christ has done. Who we once were and what Christ has done. Let's look at number one, who we once were. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. You doing okay this morning? You hanging with me? All right, verse 11. So then remember, Paul a Jew is writing to the church in Ephesus, which consisted of primarily Gentile believers. And in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, Paul informs us of what Christ has done to give us life, to give us eternal blessing. And from this truth that you were once dead, but God made you alive in Christ Jesus, that it is by grace through faith alone you have been saved. And salvation is not something that you earned or worked towards, but it's a gift given to you by God. From this gospel foundation in verses 1 through 10, Paul writes verse 11. You see, these words, so then, is pointing us backwards, pointing us to that previous section. And by doing so, Paul is calling us to be thankful for our deliverance. Thankful that we were once spiritually dead, but Christ has made us alive. He's calling us to remember our reality before Christ and to be filled with gratitude for what Christ has done to save us. In other words, Paul is inviting us once again to peer down into the death valley of the soul and to remember who we once were before Jesus saved us. Look at verse 11. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. This is a a confusing verse. (laughs) But Paul is highlighting a very real physical difference between Gentiles and and Jews, and by doing so, he's pointing to the truth that Gentiles, they were at one time socially and spiritually alienated. Paul's reminding these Ephesians, and, and he's reminding us that at one time, as Gentiles, we were separated from God, and we were separated from the people of God. 
And this term Gentile is a very broad term. It simply points to every people group in the world who are not Jewish. That's what this word is referring to, Gentile. And although there is no moral difference between Jewish and Gentile, there was a time when God dealt with these two groups differently. And so Paul says, remember, remember that long stretch of time before the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember that long stretch of human history. Remember when the promises of God, the hope of God, and the good news of Jesus Christ were largely confined to the Hebrew people. You see, Paul is referring to the time before Jesus himself said to his apostles in the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. You see, prior to that moment, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations, were largely separated from the gospel, separated from Christ, and therefore separated from God. And Paul goes on to mention a few specific ways we were alienated, beginning in verse 12 of Ephesians 2. He says, at that time, you were without Christ. First, Paul says, you were without Christ. You were Christless. Gentiles were separated from Christ. In other words, Paul is reminding the Ephesian church here, as a consequence of their birth, they were not a part of the original group that God had promised to rescue. You see, although Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, had promised that God would bring light out of darkness by a coming prince of peace, the spiritual darkness of the humanity of the Ephesians, they had no such promise. In fact, they were completely separated from the messianic hope of Israel. They had no thought, they had no hope, they had no idea of the Messiah. And not only were they Christless, but they were also stateless. Look back at verse 12. You were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise. The Ephesians were excluded. They're outside the benefits that came along with being a citizen of Israel. You see, God had given Israel instructions for justice, for mercy, for worship. And the Gentiles were excluded from the identity that came with being a citizen of Israel. And ultimately, they lived outside of the protection and the provision and the covenantal promises of God. Now, I've never lived in a different country before, but I can imagine the loneliness and the isolation that comes with living in a foreign land, that comes with living far away from your family, living away from everything that you know. I can imagine the ever-present fear of vulnerability that comes when you don't have the benefits of being a a citizen in the land in which you're living. And Paul, he's reminding these Ephesians and he's reminding us that we were, by birth, excluded from the spiritual citizenship of God's kingdom. And as a result, we live in that same sense of fear, the same sense of isolation, the same sense of vulnerability, as we lived outside the protection and the promises of God. And if this were not enough, Paul continues and he says, not only were you Christless and stateless, but he says that you were also hopeless and godless. Look back at verse 12. At this time, at that time, you were without hope. You were without God in the world. In other words, because they didn't know the promises, they did not know the God of the promises, and therefore, because they didn't know the God of the promises, they had no hope. This Gentile dilemma, which is still the world's dilemma today, it produces hostility between God and man, and hostility between man and man. 
and the hostility between man and man brings along with it all of the dehumanizing and debilitating results. You see, sin is the ultimate root of hostility. Sin is the ultimate root of racism. It's the reason why there's so many well-intentioned people who can't get along no matter what laws they pass, no matter what protests are marched, we cannot reconcile the division that sin has caused in and of ourselves. We need a Savior. I'm reminded of the Peace March in 1986. I was only three years old. <laughs> but I remember this. <laughs> it's self-destructed because of bickering and fighting. The Peace March that started in L.A., it's self-destructed by the time it got to Barstow. Those who were marching for peace were polarized over those who were real walkers and those who rode in vehicles. They fought over a dress code. They decided to hold an election, but they disagreed of who can vote. Finally, they decided that even children could vote. And then the election at that point was declared invalid. Many ended the peace march by just not speaking to each other ever again. Sadly, similar things can be said of the church. The answer to the problem doesn't lie in ourselves. It lies in remembering. Remembering that before God gave us the gift of salvation, all of us were separated from God. All of us were separated from gospel community. You see, when we remember who we were once, who we once were, and what Christ has done, we can live with constant gratitude to God. And we can live with love towards each other. And this leads us to our second movement, what Christ has done. What Christ has done. Paul, he not only instructs us to remember our pre-Christian past, but we're to remember what Christ has done to reconcile us both to God and, both, and to each other. Look at verse 13. But now, but now. These are two beautiful words that speak to the fact that a dramatic change has occurred. But now in Christ Jesus, you, meaning you Gentiles, you are far away have you been brought near to, by the blood of Christ? In other words, as true as it may be that for hundreds and even thousands of years the Gentile nations were hopelessly alienated and separated from God, here in verse 13, Paul's message shifts from bad news to good news. He says, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now the question is beg begging to be asked, what have we been brought near to? Well, we've been brought near, or we have been reconciled to all the things that we were once, at one time, separated from. We have been reconciled to God. We've been reconciled to His people. We have been brought in on God's promises that we were once separated from. And we have been given hope. And all of this is made possible, look at verse 13, by the blood of Christ. You see, all of the covenants of promise that separated Jews from Gentiles, Jesus fulfilled when he shed his blood on the cross. This is why Jesus, on the night he was arrested, in the Gospel of Matthew, it's, he took a cup in the presence of his, his disciples. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, when Jesus shed his blood, he paid for the sins of not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. For Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of who? The whole world. All people, all ethnicities, everyone across the world are included in this. John wrote, for God so loved the world, Jew and Gentile alike, that he gave his only son. 
in our text, Christ's death on the cross has two important effects. The first one is theologically. We know that Christ died on behalf of sinners. He took upon Himself the punishment that all of us deserve. Jesus took our place so that He might be declared righteous. And as a result of His great sacrifice, we receive the benefits of forgiveness, righteousness, and of new life. Experientially, we encounter the effect of the cross by our own union with Christ. Meaning, it is in Christ Jesus that we experience the benefits of His shed blood. In other words, the death of Christ is a past, a past event that you and I experience in the present. And this is what gives us peace with God and peace with one another. It is the blood of Christ that makes it possible for regenerated Jews and Gentiles alike to come profoundly near, to be reconciled into one body called the church. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's a good question. Verse 14. For He is our peace. He is our peace. Christ has reconciled us to God and to each other because Jesus is the embodiment of, He is the definition of peace. Jesus is the peacemaker. Verse 14 in the original language, it's powerfully emphatic. It says something like, He Himself is our peace. It's language that means this is, this is important. This is emphatic. This should pierce your hearts. For Jesus, look back at verse 14, He made both groups one. How? What has Christ's shed blood on the cross done to reverse our alienated sinful condition? Well, look at verse 14. He made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Now this language is graphic. It's full of emotion because the original audience would have been familiar with Herod's temple. And in Herod's temple, there was a wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple. And on that wall were death inscriptions in Latin and in Greek that, forbid, that, that it was forbidding Gentiles to enter in. In 1871 and in 1934, some archaeologists uncovered these two inscriptions from the dividing wall in Herod's temple, and they read this. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. And these descriptions that they uncovered are now on display in the Archaeological Museum in, in Istanbul and the Rockefeller Museum in Jerusalem. You can go and see these inscriptions. And friends, Christ, by His death, He has ripped this disgusting barrier down spiritually. And because of his death, Jews and Gentiles alike have access to God, have spiritual unity with one another. You see, the ultimate answer to hostility in our world is not intellectual, it's not political, it's not social, but it's spiritual. The answer comes when we step over the broken wall of hostility and come near to God and come near to each other. Imagine with me Herod's wall destroyed, the death inscriptions lying under the rubble, and the nations joyfully stepping across them, Jew and Gentile brothers and sisters hand in hand, celebrating and glorifying God for what He has done to make them one. How? How did Christ's death bring down the wall? Well, we see this in verses 15 through 16. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. 
Now, the first thing he did was he abolished the law, which can be confusing, especially if you think back to Matthew 5-7, through the, the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus says, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So what in the world does Paul mean here that he made the law no effect, that he abolished it? It seems inconsistent at best. Do they not... Does Paul not know what Jesus said? Not exactly. Look back at verse 15 and underline the phrase expressed in regulations. In other words, Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. He fulfilled the moral law. He kept its requirements. But he abolished the impossible Jewish ceremonial laws and codes, such as washing, such as circumcision, circumcision, such as the Sabbath laws, the restrictions. You see, on the cross, Christ abolished. He obliterated any part of the law that created a barrier between Jew and Gentile. Those those distinctions that were in the law that were to separate these two groups to make Israel stand out, that was abolished. Christ did away with. Does that make sense? But the moral parts of the law, he fulfilled. You see, Jesus fulfilled the moral law. He took away all condemnation. And because of what Christ has done, everyone, all people, no matter who you are, where you come from, or where you've been, we all have free access to God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works. Why? So that none of us can boast. None of us have room to boast. Since God has done the work, no one in this room is more special than the other. You see, because of Christ's work, because of God's free gift of salvation, we have now been reconciled to a holy and righteous, just God. You and I, because of Christ, can come before the throne of God and stand confidently before Him. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. In fact, we have been made righteous. All of our sin wiped away For he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I can become the righteousness of of God in Christ Jesus. So we've been reconciled to God, but we've also been reconciled to one another. This is a beautiful text. Because of God's free gift of salvation, the wall of hostility lays broken in rubble. So first, Christ abolished the impossible ceremonial codes And second, look back at verse 15. It gives us some more insight of why Christ tore down this wall of hostility. It says, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. See, Jesus' abolishing of something old resulted in something new. Christ has created a new man, the church. Now understand, this text is not saying that Gentiles were transformed into Jews or or Jews became more like Gentiles. This is not at all what the text is saying, but it's saying that God has created a new bloodline, a new man. You see, the two didn't just become one, they became better. I'm reminded of what the great preacher of the early church, John Chrysostom, in this text. He said, it is as though one took a statue of silver and a statue of lead put them in the forge, and out came a statue of gold. Only God can do what has been done. Consider Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 from last Sunday. 
For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We are God's masterpiece. We are a new race in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the answer. This is the only solution. It's the answer to alienation. It's the answer to prejudice. It's answer to hostility, to hatred. Friends, Jesus killed in His own flesh, in His own body, on the cross. He killed the hostility caused by sin in all of humanity. And this truth exists and is a current reality in the hearts and in the churches where Christ truly reigns. And when Christ returns for His church, this truth will be a universal reality. And it's beautiful. And we pray for that day. And Mission Church, until that day, we currently pray that this place here, would, would this peace and, and reconciliation that we read in this text would be a defining characteristic of Mission Church. Peace with others. It's not going to make sense fully unless we understand how Christ's blood brings us peace with God. So let's look at verse 16. It gives us a little bit more insight on this fact. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God and one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Verse 17, he came and proclaimed the good news of you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Peace to those who are Gentiles and peace to those who are near the Jews. Jesus through his death on the cross, he put to death the hostility between heaven and earth. For Jesus absorbed the righteous wrath of God that, that he had against us. And by doing so, a reconciled people, both to God and to each other. And now God relates to us as a new man, a new body, a body that we call the church, a body that is incomplete without one another. There's a sense that in some measure the full experience of reconciliation to God is incomplete until we are approaching God together as one body. This is why when we take communion each and every Sunday, we are cautioned to not participate if we are sinfully separated from each other. In that moment of remembering what Christ has done for us, we are invited to pursue reconciliation with one another to pursue peace with one another. Because we're not functioning as we should as a body if we're not forgiving each other in the same way Christ has forgiven us. We cannot come to the table to celebrate the wonderful, beautiful reality of what Christ has accomplished for us if we're harboring bitterness and unforgiveness, especially in light of what Jesus has done for us. Robert Louis Stevenson in his picturesque Notes of Eatonburg, that's the name of the, the work, he tells us, a story of two unmarried Christian sisters who, who shared a single room. As people are apt to do when they live in close quarters, the sisters had a falling out. And Stevenson says, it was on some point of controversial divinity. In other words, they disagreed over some aspect of theology. The controversy was so bitter that they never spoke again. Ever. They were no words, either kind or spiteful, just silence. Nevertheless, possibly because of a lack of means or because uh, of the innate Scottish fear of scandal and what other people think, they continued to live together in this single room. A chalk line was drawn across the floor, up the wall, to separate their two domains. For years, they coexisted in hateful silence. Each woman's meals, baths, family visitors were exposed to the other unfriendly silence. 
At night, each went to bed listening to the heavy breathing of her enemy. And thus, the two sisters continued to live their miserable existence. These sisters probably were not really Christians. But as Christians, we're not to resist forgiveness. We're not to resist reconciliation. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew 6. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. You see, being forgiven is a sign of knowing God's forgiving grace. And when we put the hostilities that exist between us to death, it brings the power of God to life in our experience. And as we grow in the knowledge of God, as we grow in our understanding of the gospel, and when we live out the peace Christ intends for us, we break down the barriers that our sinful humanity and society has placed on us. And the result is a peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding. Now look at verse 18. Paul points us to the result of knowing Jesus, who is our peace. Don't miss this. This is such a beautiful verse. For through Him we both Jew and Gentile have access in one spirit to the Father. This verse speaks to the truth that when we have Jesus Christ, when we have Jesus as Lord and Savior by the Spirit to the Father, in other words, the resources of the entire Trinity are ours the moment we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. This is a beautiful Trinitarian verse here. It's pointing out the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit. In that moment, we're not just judicially reconciled, but we are given intimate relationship with the Father, with practical value in which we can come before Him, that text in which we meditated on earlier. We could come before Him with confidence and bring our needs to Him. It speaks to the truth that Jesus is the only way to God. There's no other way to the Father, is what this is referring to. He is the only way into God's presence. He is the only door into God's kingdom. There is no other way. It's only through Christ. You see, the gospel is inclusive to all people. Everyone. No matter who they are, where they've been, where they come from, everyone can get on in on this. But the gospel is also exclusive in the fact that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only way to God. This exclusive access to God, though, is so beautiful. It's so wonderful and glorious because it can never be taken away from you. Consider with me again the, mess, the passage we meditated on earlier. This beautiful invitation of God to those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. You see, through Jesus, you can confidently draw close to God. For through God's divine Son, Jesus Christ, we have become sons, we have become daughters, and now you, brother and sister, you no longer have a spirit of slavery that leads to fear, but a spirit of adoption that leads to confidence in approaching God as your loving and perfect Father that He is. Brothers and sisters, you were once socially and spiritually alienated. You were once at odds with God. You were once at odds with one another. But Christ, through His death on the cross, we now have peace. We have peace with God. We have peace with each other. And because we have Christ, and because we have peace, we all have equal access to God. There's no longer any distinction between us. We are brothers and sisters who have a good, good Father. A Father who loves us. A Father who forgives us. A Father who blesses us. And before whom we could come any time without fear of condemnation without fear of being rejected and being judged. Mission Church, 
May we continue to glorify God in all that we do. May we continue to partner with God to make disciples of all nations. May we be a church that stomps on the rubble of the broken down wall of hostility. And by way of how we love one another, may the world look in and see and accept the only true source of peace, Jesus Christ. May our unity proclaim the mystery of the gospel to a broken world that is in desperate need of a Savior. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you've done. We were once alienated, separated, on the outs. But you've drawn us to yourself through your son Jesus, what he's done on the cross. You've reconciled to you, us to you, and reconciled us to one another. This gift that you've given us, the church, what a beautiful picture of what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. In the end of Revelations, your word says that, uh, that all people from every tribe, tongue, every nation is going to be glorifying you, proclaiming that you are God. I pray in the meantime that we can be a picture of that. And the world can see that the only true answer, the only true source of peace is Jesus. May we be a reflection of this in our lives personally as a church and how we live and, and how we love in this valley. Help us, Lord. We need you. We thank you that you're empowering us to live a, a life that loves Jesus, lives like Jesus, and is intentional about leading others to Jesus. We give you all the glory, God. You're the only one that deserves it. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.